Hello, I'm Father Mitch Packle, and I want to welcome all of you to this EWTN Live Christmas Special. Each year, we try to do a special Christmas show as our gift to you and your family. And this year, we also wanted to make it a special gift to a group of people in our society who are often forgotten about and discarded throughout the year, but especially during the holidays. We took a trip to visit the Mark W. Stiles Unit Maximum Security State Prison in Beaumont, Texas. I was able to celebrate Holy Mass with about 200 inmates and other guests. We also brought along with us four incredible musicians who put on a really soul-stirring concert. We had such a great time that we decided to make it into two shows. So gather your family and sit back and enjoy some highlights from the Mass celebrated inside the Chapel of Hope at the Stiles Unit Prison in Beaumont, Texas, as well as a wonderful concert from pianist and composer Eric Genuis and his ensemble of very, very talented musicians. We'll also hear from the inmates' choir and from a few of the inmates themselves as well. Uh, and so it'll be a great opportunity to be with the inmates. The next week, we'll bring you part two of this Christmas special from Beaumont, Texas, with even more great music and fellowship with our incarcerated brothers. We hope you really enjoy part one of this special holiday program. Great to be here. I'm Father Mitch Packle. I haven't met all of you, met a lot of you. Great to be here. It's a privilege. And let us celebrate this Mass.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to the Gospel to, to St. Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah became the father of Peretz and Zerach, whose mother was Tamar. Peretz became the father of Chetzron. Chetzron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nachshon. Nachshon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz became the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed became the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David, the king. David became the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon became the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Aviah. Aviah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Yoram. Yoram, the father of Uziahu. Uziahu, the father of Yotam. Yotam, the father of Achaz. Achaz, the father of Chezkiahu. Chezkiahu, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Yechaniah and his brothers at the time of the Babylonian exile. After the Babylonian exile, Yehoniahu became the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Tzadok. Tzadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Of her was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Thus, the total number of generations from Abraham to David is 14 generations. From David to the Babylonian exile, 14 generations. And from the Babylonian exile to the Christ, 14 generations. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. Please be seated.
The Bible has a lot of lists of names, and this is one of them, right? Usually this is the part of the Bible people like to sort of skim through. But I don't think so here. I love this gospel. For one thing, I get to show off because I know how to read all these names. <laughs> I'm always happy to show off like most of us are. But there are a couple things that are very important in this text. First, notice how at the very end it says after that list, 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, 14 from the exile to Jesus. Why 14? Part of it is a way to say who Jesus is. You know, in Hebrew and other languages, like Latin, letters of the alphabet are numbers. Some of you have seen Roman numerals, right? I is one, V is five, X is 10, L is 50, and so on, right? Well, in Hebrew, it's the same thing. Aleph is one, Bet is two, Dalet is, excuse me, Gimel is three, Dalet is four, He is five, and so on. And they use these letters to uh, count. But that also opens up something because then the names have numerical value. And if you take the letter Dalet, the equivalent of our D, from which our D comes, and you, you take and add that up, that's number four. And then the letter Vav, equivalent of our V, then it's six. And then Dalet, again, four. And you add that four plus six plus four is 14, right? And that word spells David, David. So the number 14 is the number for the name David. And it's trying to bring out Jesus is the son of David, David, David. That's what they're trying to bring out and emphasize his roots. In fact, if you remember, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Our Lady at the Annunciation, he says, and he will sit on the throne of his father, David. So that's what's going on here. But then there's another element. One of the worst things that could happen to you would, and your whole reputation is that you would be one of the people mentioned in the Bible. Because 
When you're mentioned in the newspaper, or if you're one of these Hollywood characters that gets into People magazine, they talk about your sins, right? That's what sells. And they put them in there. But a newspaper, you throw it out at the end of the day. People magazine, you throw it out at the end of the month till you find out the next gossip. But when your name is in the Bible, your sins are put in there too. And people will read about your sins for the next 4,000 years and counting. And then they go and call a church. So one of the last things you want is your name in the Bible. And that's part of the, that is, in fact, the point of this whole list. That most of us, I'm, as a matter of fact, I would say this, all of us had no choice about the family into which we were born, right? You didn't ask before you were born, said, well, can I choose a nice rich family? No, you had nothing to say about it. And that's part of human life. You're just born into the family that we're born in, and they don't know that it's us that's coming either, do they? They have no idea what we're going to be like, but we come out crying with our own little personality, and we all meet. Not so with Jesus Christ. Remember, his birth had been promised all the way back to Adam and Eve. All the way back, it says that I will put enmity between, this is speaking to Eve now, I'll put enmity between your seed and Satan's seed. And this, and you say, wait a second, wait, whoa, whoa. This is something weird. Because when they talk about babies, it's always the man who brings the seed, isn't it? What's the Greek word for seed? Sperm. That's what we contribute to the birth of a baby, right? And how is it he's telling Eve that there'll be enmity between your seed? Women don't have seed, except once, when God is born to a virgin. That's the only time. And so already you see a prediction of Jesus Who's a, who, of course, exists from all eternity. And then throughout the Bible, these prophecies of Christ coming into this very family. This is the family he did choose to come into. Even the psalm that we have here today, this Psalm 72, was written back 
in the 900s BC about the Messiah. Psalm 2 is written in the 900s. The prophecy that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem is written in the 700s BC. Over and over again, that when it says that a virgin will conceive and bear a son in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that is written in about 732 BC. We know the dates for a lot of these. It's way before it happened. And it's God's own Holy Spirit that inspired it because God is choosing to come into this family. This is his choice. It wasn't like, oh, well, I guess there's nobody else. I guess I'll just pop in this family. No, he prepared this for centuries and even thousands of years ahead of time. But look at this family. Like I said, if you're in the Bible, your sins are written down and they're there to be read at church and in meditation and prayer. Look at the women. There are only four women mentioned in this whole passage. First one, Tamar, is a Canaanite woman. She had sex with her father-in-law and conceived two of Jesus' ancestors, twin brothers, by dressing up as a prostitute at a convention. It was a sheep shearing convention, and that was one of the few conventions they had in those days. And women, prostitutes at a convention is not new. This is Bronze Age time. And she's mentioned there. The next woman, Rahab, she's not like Tamar. Tamar was an amateur prostitute. Rahab was a professional. And she is Jesus' great-great-grandmother. Ruth is mentioned. Now, she didn't do anything wrong except be born to the wrong people because her country, the Moabites, came about when Lot slept with his daughter. They're the children of incest. In fact, that's what their name Moab means. They came from their own father. And then the fourth woman, they won't even say her name. We know it. It's Bathsheba. But she committed adultery with David, and then David proceeded to kill her husband. So it was adultery and murder to cover up the adultery. This is the family Jesus chose to come into. And I'm just mentioning the women at the outset because there's only four of them. But you go to all the men, and it's the same story. Abraham lied twice because he was a coward. He lied and said, yeah, my wife, that's my sister. You want to marry my sister? No, that's your wife. And if it weren't for God punishing the Egyptians and the Canaanite king that wanted to marry his wife, 
He would have given her over to adultery because he was a coward. He was afraid. And he says that. His son Isaac, like father, like son, he does the same thing. Next generation is Israel, Jacob Israel. Jacob lies to his blind father in order to get the inheritance and the blessing. Lies to his face. That's a, it doesn't sound like my son Esau, but it smells like him. They didn't have arid extra dry. <laughs> and he lies. Oh, no, no, I'm your son. And then, after he also cheated his brother out of his inheritance and lied to his blind father. You keep going through. Judah is the one that went into the prostitute. He thought it was just a regular prostitute, was his daughter-in-law. And he wanted to kill her. You keep going through all this history. I mentioned David killing a guy. And Solomon, again, he got married a thousand times. Marriage is a great good. That's overdoing it. That's just too much. And he then ended up worshiping the gods of all these wives. He put temples across. Jerusalem is on a hill. There's a very steep valley, a gorge. And then up on the other side is another hill. And he put altars all over that place looking at his, his own town. And then his son, Rehoboam, was a complete fool and threatened to beat the people. He said, I'll show you who's king around here. I'll beat your backs with the stingers of scorpions. Now, he's just low down mean. This is Jesus' family. I mentioned Ahaz in there. What did he do? He took, he built an altar for the Syrian gods, and then he took two of his sons and sacrificed them in a fire. Not even little babies, though. They were teenage boys, and he sacrificed his own two sons just to keep the political powers pleased. This is not a nice family, it's a family of sinners. And this is the family Jesus chose to enter. Not the nice people, but these folks. And the more we look at Jesus' family, I start to say, well, I resemble those remarks. You know, my own grandfather came to America from Poland because he was running from the police. He had murdered a man back there. And he came and hid here, and it wasn't much better when he got to America. Now, this is, we, again, we don't choose that, but we've got all of this kind of sinful background in our families and in ourselves. Every one of us has it in ourselves in different ways. And just as Jesus chose to come into this family in order to redeem every single family, he comes to us. That's why this gospel is so important. 
He comes to this family and he comes to each of us no differently. He came into them in order to come into us and to show us a salvation. They say, well, you know what a mess you're getting into when you enter into my life, Lord. You know what I've done. I said, yeah, I know what my whole family did. But I come into this. Now, there's one cool thing that's worth mentioning. The Blessed Virgin Mary. This is where she becomes something extra special. Now, originally, I'm from Chicago. I'm glad not to be there anymore. <laughs> it's not a fun place, but I'm from there. And Chicago has a lot of stupidity on lots of levels. One of the dumbest things Chicago ever did was dump all of the sewers into the Chicago River. You know why that's so dumb? The river used to flow into Lake Michigan, and that's our drinking water. Putting your sewage into the drinking water is really dumb. So what did they do? Now, in Chicago, you can fix everything, from a ticket to a judge to the river. So what they did was this. They dug a canal that went down to a lower river, a little bit lower in elevation than the Chicago River. They dug a gradual downslope for quite a few miles. I think it's about 100 miles. And the last part of it is when they got to the Chicago River. They left it all, the bank there. And then when they were ready, just about 1900 or so, they blew that up. And all of a sudden, the river water started to flow downhill towards this other river. And it changed course. Humans have never done that before, making a whole river flow the opposite direction. And that way, the lake flowed into the river, and our sewage flows down to Memphis. That's not nice either. <laughs> but it's sadly true. And so they, they, said they did that. And then they put a lock where the lake comes into the river. This is where it has doors in the river so that when a big ship or any boat goes into the river from the lake, they open it so that the lake water comes in, but the river water doesn't go into the lake. It's a great deal. It's a lock. This is what Our Lady does. This is why she is without sin. This is why she's the one who has the seed, the one woman who has a seed when Jesus is conceived inside of her. And she helps to be the one through which the good water, that is the grace of God, this infinite grace, like Lake Michigan is so big, this infinite grace of God flows into the sinful river of our lives and the human history and human families so that 
The grace enters us and cleans us and changes the pollution. In fact, now it took a long time. When I was a kid, if you fell in the Chicago River, you had to get a tetanus shot. It was that polluted. That's how bad it was. Now they have it, they've cleaned it up, and this fresh water goes through, and people swim in it. I still balk at the idea, but this is the same thing about the grace of God coming to us from Christ, entering through the pure virgin, and it's like the river, slowly, gradually getting rid of the pollution of sin. And every one of us is there to receive it. We ask Jesus to do this. We ask in faith. We ask in trust. We ask humbly. Most of us know, eventually, being sinful makes us so dumb, and if we're smart... We realize how dumb we are, and we humble ourselves and let that grace flow in so that Jesus can transform us even better than the politicians transformed the Chicago River. By the way, some of that water now does get to Memphis, so it's a little bit better. <laughs> this is what we hope for, and this is what we celebrate at Christmas.
We have to take a short break, so please stay with us. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Next, we'd like to introduce Eric Genuis and his ensemble of musicians. They are violinist John Fawcett, cellist Brendan Phelps, and vocalist Ju Yun Lee, as they perform original works composed by Eric Genuis and some traditional sacred songs and carols. Gentlemen, I play, my name is Eric Jenis, and so I'm a composer and a pianist, so everything you're going to hear today is works that I've written. Now, we perform in every kind of venue imaginable. So we play in concert halls, I play in a lot of celebrity homes, and I play in a lot of country clubs, and I play, you know, a lot of different, even, you know, private homes. I try to raise money for my work that I play in a lot of different places. So I play in a lot of prisons. And my 1,000th show in a prison was on death row here in Texas. Isn't that cool? So, yeah. So we perform all over the world. So I play in prisons and rehab centers and inner city schools. And so why? Why do you go into those places and play? That's nice that you go and entertain people. I have absolutely no interest in leaving my family to entertain anybody. In order to answer that question, gentlemen, I have to talk about music and its impact. So I'm 56 years old. And when I was a kid and you wanted to hear music, it's a lot different than now. When I was a kid and you wanted to hear music, first of all, you had to save your $20, so it was expensive. And then you had to go to the record store, so it was inconvenient. How did that conversation go? Your dad comes home from work. Hi, Dad. Uh, how about you get back into traffic? I know you just got out of traffic, but let's get back into traffic and drive to the record store because it's closing in 20 minutes to buy. And by the way, I need $20 to buy music you don't want to hear. <laughs> How's that? And then when you got that album home, guys, basically it was inaccessible, right? You had to sit in that living room. We didn't have this. You had to get to that record store. Sorry, my violinist is 22. John, a record store is a building. You drive up to the building. <laughs> uh, forget it. Okay, forget it. Okay. So, so now, gentlemen, we have, unlike any other time in history, the world library of music at our fingertips. Never have we had that. My kids, your kids, my grandchildren, your grandchildren can listen to whatever they want, whenever they want, how often they want, in any environment they want. There's no restriction. So is that good? So we ask this stuff, and we just sort of accept what's thrown at us, and we just think, oh, it must be good, because here it is. And after all, it's advancement. But let's look at it from a couple of different ways, because our young do little else more than they listen to music. Maybe they breathe more than they listen to music, maybe not. First thing in the morning, guys, on these go, right? They throw these things on. They get in the car to go to school with three. There could be five siblings in a car. Mom or dad's driving them to school, and there could be five completely different social things going on because what each one is engaged with outside 
because of this. Okay, so then they get to school all day in school. These things are on. Every video game they play, every series they binge, and every movie they watch has music behind it. Is that good? Well, the most famous piece of music last year had such vulgar content that I won't even mention the title up here. Now, it's not that that stuff scares me, but it certainly belittles me. It belittles you, and it belittles my musicians. I'm not going to do it. And then they gave her a woman of the year. I'm thinking, why? Because, because she sang something that was vulgar? And yet, you know what? Your kids and my kids in the third grade are listening to that over and over and over. That's not funny, gentlemen. That's called formation. They are learning about civilization through this. They're learning about everything. They're learning about you as parents, you as grandparents. They're learning about siblings. They're learning about women. They're learning about everything sacred through this. So the question is, is that good? Well, let's look at a couple of things. Plato, sorry, let's start with Confucius. Thousands of years ago said the following. This is how they looked at music. Because right now, we look at music as like, whatever, whatever they throw at me. It's all good. And we have sayings that have no meaning whatsoever. Like, oh, beauty, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Has no meaning. So what we're going to do is throughout this concert, examine this stuff. But let's look. Confucius said, if you want to know the morality of a nation, let me hear the music. Period. He didn't say, let me read the textbooks. He didn't say, let me talk to the teachers. He didn't say any of that. He said, let me hear the music. He didn't feel anything goes. Plato, you want to govern a nation? You don't need the laws. What do you mean you don't need the laws? Are you a madman? He said, you don't need the laws. All you need is the music. You have the music, you move their hearts. Gentlemen, he didn't think anything goes. And then there's more. Socrates, music is a moral law. A moral law? I thought music was just background when I was eating dinner or background to my video games. He didn't feel that. He said, music is a moral law. It gives soul to the universe, wings to the mind, flight to the imagination, and a charm and a gaiety to life and to everything. That's what he felt about music. You want to know my favorite definition of music, though? Guys, I was playing for 300 youth that were all tried and convicted as adults. These were 15-year-old kids going away for 30 years. What does a 15-year-old boy know about 30 years? 15-year-old boy, the leader in the room was right in front, right in front. And this kid, I walked in, this kid was staring at the ceiling, you know, sort of slouching, you know, full attitude was right on. So I put a chair beside him and I slouched too, although I couldn't get my back anywhere near, anyway. <laughs> so he's staring at the ceiling and I'm staring at the ceiling. And I said, hey, buddy, there's nothing going on up there. I said, in two minutes, I'm going to be up at the front. You know what? I'm not going to force my music on anybody. You're either sitting up or I'm taking my instruments and I'm going home because I'm losing money. It's up to you. Well, within five seconds, guys, this guy was up. And he was, during the show, I was up and down the aisle and he was firing off questions to the violinist. How does he play so fast? How does he know where the fingers go? How does he, how does he make that sound? And through the whole show, he's talking about the sound. At the end of the show, this boy stands up, 15 
When you're 15, you're not even supposed to admit that you like a violin concert. This boy stands up and he says, can I hear the violin alone? And the violin is played. And then the boy starts to weep, puts his hand over his heart, and he says, that violin's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Why have I never heard it before? Guys, what a great question, right? We have the day and age of the internet. We could have given him anything we wanted. He knows everything about rap and all that culture, everything about hip-hop and all the culture, everything about heavy metal and all the culture, screamo metal, punk rock, acid rock, alternative rock, all the kinds of rocks, and all the culture that goes along with him. He knows nothing about music that uplifts him and elevates his humanity. That is a poverty. It's not a financial poverty. That is a poverty, a definitely an emotional and a societal poverty. Why is this the first time this boy is hearing something that is elevating and inspiring his humanity? Gentlemen, that's why I go in. That's why I go in anywhere. I want to entertain you today. Far more than that, gentlemen, I want to write music that uplifts and brings hope and brings joy and brings inspiration. Guys, you're going to hear of the greatest soloist ever. So I really want you to not miss a note. All the works you're going to hear today is music that I have composed. Well, if you like it. If you don't like it, then he composed it, okay? <laughs> All right. Okay, gentlemen, this first piece is a piano, violin, cello, trio. This is called Rebellion.
We also wanted you to meet some of the inmates and hear what they themselves had to say. So let's listen to them now. I'd like to welcome you, Kenneth. Uh, give us your, your name so everybody knows it. My name is Kenneth Dwight Hadnot. And we are over in the Stiles Prison Unit over in the great state of Texas. Uh, but it's not so great to be in this <laughs> unit, but how did, how did you get in contact with some of the folks here at the chapel? Um, to begin, I would like to th let you know it's an honor and a privilege to be interviewed by you, Father Mitch, and all the supporters of EWTN. It's a blessing. It's definitely a privilege for me to be here. Well, it's a blessing for us to be able to talk to you, too. I'm really glad to be here with you. Um, I met a volunteer named Larry Perio. Yeah. He uh, He's a CBCA. Uh, I think it's some, I don't know the the, the definition of those yeah. titles. But nonetheless, I was on, I was in high security. And um, I was come down here for a phone call for a death in my family. He reached out to me, and he said, "You know what? I like you, man. You know, you 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 straightforward, you frank. Um, you seem like a good guy. What are you doing down there?" And at that time, basically, I was, you know, violating all institutional rules at that time. I didn't have no sense of purpose or anything. Well, this guy invested his time and talent and treasure in me. He happened to be a Catholic, so. That's how I got invited down here. This was in 2016. Ever since then, I've been, you know, improving with my growth, my health, my spirituality and stuff. Like mm -hmm. and, I'm, and I'm proud to say I'm a person of faith and I ascribe to Catholicism. This, you weren't much of a person of faith before that? No, sir. No way. No way. Yeah. Was there any faith in your family? No, Do sir. people practice? No, sir. I had a, a chaotic and abusive childhood. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't have no Christmas. We didn't enjoy holidays. I never had a birthday. None above. You know, I was uh, I was in the streets at age 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And the streets became my refuge. Sure. And, and they didn't do birthdays and Christmas either. No, sir. No <laughs> doubt. No. You know. Yeah. yeah this, you know, this is something that is hard for a lot of folks to understand that you know how important family is and the absence is really you know the lack of family you know not doing the normal care for a kid right. that's that really makes a difference right. and we were able to celebrate you know christmas here yes, and ha have this celebration of mass and music yes, what does that bring to you? Well, like I mentioned before, I never had experience Christmas, you know. I never had that experience like normal kids. Um, with that being said, I always heard the phrase, Jesus is a reason for the season. And I always just thought it was a cliche. Yeah. Well, you know, when I came to the faith, I got to understand about the, uh, the nativity of Jesus, you know, how um, it's depicted in Matthew and, and Luke how Jesus was born and God sent his son, yeah. you know, for our, for our benefit, mm -hmm. solely for our benefit, which is a benevolent thing to do. And I come to find out when I, you know, embraced that, 
Christmas didn't mean a, a European holiday or something that a capitalist, that, that you know, a, some kind of social construct. So it means much more to me. Uh, Christmas is when Jesus was birthed, when the shepherds, the angels came to the shepherds and talked about Jesus. The, um, you know, Emmanuel with us, I mean, God is with us. So it just brings joy and peace to me and give me, you know, love. You know, it's exciting now, you know, to draw Christmas and it's not about a gift, you know. One of the things that you said about that it's not just some European holiday. Right. One of the great things about Bethlehem yes, sir. and the Holy Land, mm -hmm. this is where Africa, Asia, and Europe can meet. Mm -hmm. There are two roads over there that connect those three continents. Did you ever think of that? No, sir, I'm not good with the uh, one of these days, I have to take you over there. Okay. But there, there's two roads that have been used for the last 12,000 years, same roads. And they connect Africa, Asia, where Israel is, and Europe. And it's so important. You and I never met before. No, sir. But those, that place in between those two roads that connect the world brought us together, too. And you get to be brought together to my whole audience in every other part of the world. And I want to thank you for sharing with us. No I really appreciate it. It's Kenneth. my pleasure, sir. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us in this celebration with the really wonderful men here at the Stiles Unit State Prison in Beaumont, Texas. And we hope you'll join us next week as well for part two of our special Christmas episode. But until then, may the Lord bless you and our families as you celebrate this Christmas with great joy. We have to take a short break, but we'll be back in a couple minutes, so please stay with you. Oh. <laughs> stay with you. <laughs> stay with you, leave me alone, no. Hi, I'm Father Mitch Packle, and we are going to have a very special celebration of Christmas in this chapel at the Stiles Unit of the State Prison System in the great state of Texas. We are in Beaumont, Texas, right near the golf course. Oh, golf course. <laughs> I don't even know how to play golf. I've never played golf in my life. <laughs> Let's try it again. I think Father Mitch got this down back. <laughs> <laughs>